Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casella. With me today is actually James Zuba. No, no Dan Lyons today, so unfortunately for the listeners, not as much beer talk. But uh, happy, <laughs> happy to be on, and uh, hopefully we'll talk some some hoops and be able to shed some light on you know the season and, and where we are with Syracuse basketball. Yeah, no, uh, no, no Mets talk. Uh, probably <laughs> minimal amounts of beer talk. Um, Andy is going to join us in the second half here to talk a little bit of football and uh, and, and some Marvel because it's uh, it's WandaVision week uh, for, for for the fellow Marvel fans out there, but. Uh, James is here to talk hoops, so we'll jump right into that. Um, James, in a weird couple games, um, SU's kind of had some second-half collapses last two games. Uh, one of those resulted in a loss against Pitt. The other uh, still hung out for the win against Georgetown. Uh, what have been kind of some of the through lines that you've seen um, in, in these two games? Yeah, well, in both games, Syracuse, you know, initially in the Pitt game, got off to a really good start and played pretty well throughout the rest of the half. I think the offense... Uh, leveled off a little bit as the half went on, but still had a you know commanding lead and uh, very very similar with the Georgetown game in terms of the first half and um, you know the the difference I think the the reason for the loss against Pittsburgh is Syracuse was really content to to shoot threes and the offense got stagnant down the stretch they they didn't do that so much against Georgetown um, you saw the perimeter players get off get off the three point line a little bit Buddy particular he he was you know, looking to drive a little bit more in terms of uh, getting off the bounce instead of settling for three. Um, Gerard still shot some threes, but, um, you know, I think his his shots were good shots. And that, that was really the difference in the Georgetown game is, you know, guys were taking less threes. They were more judicious in their attempts, um, really kind of only taking, you know, open shots there. And then when they weren't lo- looking to create and, uh, and finish that game out, you know, G- Georgetown, I think they're a little bit better than the record might suggest. Um, but you know, Syracuse is the better team and, you know, they, they proved that they're down the stretch and, and got that done. Yeah. And I mean, I'd argue too, and we'll see very shortly, um, if SU is indeed a better team than Pitt. Um, I felt that SU was definitely a better team than Pitt. Uh, I, I think as much yeah. as the, the shot selection was a problem, um, on Wednesday, I think one of the bigger issues was just the second half defense. Um, you know, obviously it's a zone, so it's a team effort, but, uh, you know, after allowing just you know, 18 points in, in the first half. They allowed 45 in the second half. Uh, Pitt was definitely able to do, well, even, I mean, Pitt was able to do whatever they wanted inside and in the paint. They weren't even drawing a ton of fouls. It was just that they just simply had SU's number uh, once they drove the lane, um, it appeared. I mean, SU, you know, Pitt only went 7 to 28 uh, from three. This, so this wasn't like some kind of fluky um, game where a team just gets hot from outside. This was solely like, you know, just just killing SU in the paint. They out rebounded them forty nine to thirty three. I, I think that you know, while it was fun to celebrate, uh, you know, Big Bobby Braswell, you know, hitting four or five from outside. If Braswell's shooting five threes in a game, chances are that uh, that, that that something's amiss in terms of the game plan. I would think. Yeah, yeah, no question. I think you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, Pittsburgh, it, it was. You know they were able to drive drive the zone, and when they when they miss shots, which Pittsburgh is wont to do because they're they're not a very good offensive team, they they were just able to get on the offensive glass. Um, I think part of that has to do with Barama Sidibe being out and Marek Dolajai playing center, and you know he, he he's capable in there; he could do it. But for forty minutes against you know some ACC competition, that's that's a tall tall order for him. Um, yeah, you know we lo- we love Robert Braswell, obviously, right? 
Um, if, if he does shoot four or five from three every game, you, you would take that, you know, you'd, you'd sign up for that in a heartbeat. But, uh, if, if he's the guy that's, you know, get, getting shots, I think, uh, you know, it's a little bit worrisome for Syracuse. You want some of your bigger players to take some shots down the stretch and, uh, you know, cr- credit to him. He, he had a really good week, but, uh, you'd like to see some of those perimeter players, uh, step up a little bit more specifically Alan Griffin. Um, he hasn't played up to his level that he's, he's capable of in the past two games. And, uh, Quincy's leveled off a little bit. He was in foul trouble and, you know, against Pitt earlier in the week, but, um, had a decent game against Georgetown, but we, we know he's capable of doing more. Yeah, I completely agree there. And I think that's a great segue, um, you know, talking about uh, the bigs uh, into, you know, what's going to happen against North Carolina. Like North Carolina is not necessarily um, a, a great shooting team. 41.9% from the field, um, three-point wise, 30.4%. Uh, that's not great. Most of their starters are, I mean, really the guys that had the, the line share of the minutes are not really hitting threes um, to, to any great rate. Um, they're two three-point shooters, um, Andrew Pladek and uh, Kerwin Walton. Walton recently inserted into the starting lineup, uh, but relatively speaking, like this is not a team that's gonna that's gonna spread the zone out. But what it could do instead, because they do have you know so many players who can rebound, so many bigs, um, is that they could collapse the zone a bit, and that could open up some opportunities. Uh, I think at least for for these three-point shooters. Uh, that if they're able to get hot, uh, that, that could really bury SU and or put SU in a situation where they're once again just letting it fly from outside. And, and while I, I think that, you know, there are plenty of games where, where Buddy Beheim in particular, but also Joe Girard can hit um, at a reasonable clip, I think the more you end up in a, in a bit of a barn burner situation with these guys, um, you do start to see inefficiencies um, pop up. And, and I'm sure that you agree that, you know, Buddy Beheim in particular is at his best uh, when he's able to, um, get into the mid-range and, and, and make some things happen there because that just seems to create such a different flow uh, for the offense and it makes him much harder to guard. Yeah, so much to unpack in that. First, Beheim should absolutely look to, you know, pack the zone in a little bit against this UNC team. Um, you know, I've watched them quite a few times this year, actually, and their their best player is, is a freshman, Dayron Sharp, who also has just been inserted in the starting lineup. And replace, he replaced Garrison Brooks, who was the pre, preseason ACC player of the year. So Brooks is coming off the bench now. But they still have three good bigs. And, and really, their, their fourth big is a seven-foot-one player in Walker Kessler. So they, they have four capable bigs in there. Um, that's that's going to be a problem against SU, as we know, with the zone. We've seen it over the years with UNC. They like to push the ball. They're going to try to beat Syracuse. You know, they're going to try to beat them down the floor before the zone can get set up. And... They're also going to rebound the ball, you know, offensively and, and defensively, you know, the, the top rebounding team in the ACC. So Syracuse should look to pack it in. They do have a couple guys. I mean, Andrew Playtech's not exactly a guy that's going to get loose and hit five threes. I don't think he's hit more than three threes in a single game in his entire North Carolina career, but he's, he's certainly a guy that can get loose and hit one or two. The, the guy you got to watch is Kerwin Walton. Um, he's also a freshman, as you mentioned. Uh, he's a starter now, but, but he's the guy that can burn you from outside. He's he's the number one guy you got to locate on the perimeter because he's a guy that can get loose for four or five if you know you're too busy packing in the zone, worried about uh, the bigs and the offensive rebounding. So uh, a lot to look for there. And then on the flip side, as you mentioned with Buddy, he he's he's very good at getting off the dribble. Um, obviously, his shot is his best attribute, but he's really good in kind of that one-two dribble max. You know, pull up. We'll, we see him kind of get to his spot. Um, you know, maybe a reverse pivot creates a little bit of space and he's tall so he can get his shot off 
over, you know, some smaller defenders. So he, he should look to do that a little bit more, you know, obviously if he's open, you want him to shoot it, but you really don't want him to settle. You kind of want him to, you know, take it, take that one dribble, two dribble pull up. And um, he's got a soft touch kind of, you know, bounces around the rim a little bit. So he's, he's good in that mid range. You know, one thing I want to talk to you about a little bit, because I know you're more of an X's and O's guy uh, when it comes to, to basketball uh, than I might be. Um, last two games, I felt like the the, the late offensive sets uh, for Syracuse have been these confusing kind of setups where you see uh, Marek Dolzhai kind of handling the ball on the left wing um, or, or close to it, uh, kind of dribble, like e- either back to the rim or or, or picking up his dribble while, while four SU uh, offensive players stand kind of stoically on the other side um, of the arc, um, not really doing much, not cutting to the rim. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's much happening there. Uh, I, obviously, I know that's not how <laughs> the, the play is being drawn up, uh, but, but, but I'm curious how SU now for two straight games has seemingly ended up in the same exact situation um, with, with Dolajai being kind of the, I mean, I know he's a great distributor, but being the main ball handler, um, on the perimeter with no one kind of on the interior now for two straight games. Yeah. Yeah. You bring up a great point. And, and even obviously SU was on pause, but even if you go back to the Buffalo game, the last play of the game was, was for Dolajai to get the ball and, and really just to make a play. Um, we, we saw what happened. Obviously he turned the ball over and if not for Alan Griffin, you know, Syracuse is looking at three losses here, but, uh, that 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 was the play. Jim, Jim Beheim said in the post game presser they wanted to get the ball to Marek, and they wanted him to just go and make a play. Uh, I, I think that works with you know a Tyus battle, but uh, maybe that's not the the best offense that you could run. I mean, I kind of understand he's he's your senior. You want the ball in his hands. You want him to go out. You want to kind of live and die with you know your most veteran player there. So so I think that makes sense. But um, surely you can you can draw something up better. And uh, yeah, as we've seen down the stretch in these last few games, it's. The, the offense has been good throughout, but it seems like down the stretch, uh, guys are content to just kind of stand around and, and wait for somebody else to make a play. Uh, I think a little bit of that has to do with not knowing who the go-to guy is on this team. Uh, Elijah Hughes obviously was in that role last year, and uh, you know it makes sense for him to kind of take over games down the stretch, and we saw him do that at times. Um, you know, the, the Florida State game comes to mind, even though it resulted in a loss, but he still made some big plays down the stretch of that one. Um, so I, I really think that Syracuse doesn't really know who the go-to guy is. Um, we, we've seen kind of Buddy be a little bit of a leader out there. Maybe he can do – he can, you know, kind of be that guy down the stretch. Um, Alan Griffin has been there in spots, but I, I think he's being asked to do a lot more than what he was doing at Illinois. So some of this might be a little bit foreign to him still. So, um, you know, I, I think that's that's really the one reason there, though, is that we, we don't really know who the go-to guy is on this team down the stretch. Yeah, I mean, we've had teams like that in the past, um, and it's worked out pretty well. But I, I think, at least for me, the difference here is that there may be a little, there might be a little too much hesitance from everyone. Well, I'd say in some respects, I feel like it's a little too much hesitance to to drive to the lane and make that play. Um, where things are a little bit different, however, is, is, is I think there's no hesitance from anybody on this team other than maybe Dolajai. Um, to, to just, you know, spot up and, and jack up a three. Uh, and, and so I think it's this, this weird balance of kind of overconfidence, um, you know, from some players from outside and then maybe not enough confidence inside uh, for other guys. And I, I think that that's definitely, definitely takes its toll in late game situations. And, and, and you hope that, that SU is able to, to outscore teams. I think where, where this team's kind of lost its way in recent games 
um, in particular, just like the last two is that, you know, you don't expect them to score a hundred every week, but at the same time, you would think that there's, that there, there's a benefit for, for a, for a not so great defensive team to, to, to run, to keep tempo up, to keep pace up, um, and, and really force teams to, to, to keep up shooting with them, shooting with them from outside. Um, and that just hasn't necessarily happened um, the last couple of games. And that's how you end up in these weird slugfests, um, especially as SU in traditional fashion kind of start taking the air out of the ball. Um, you know, once they, once they end up with, with a decent sized lead. Yeah, ab- absolutely right there. Um, Syracuse is a different team stylistically this year and really last year too, than what we're used to seeing. You know, if, if Syracuse puts out the 2017, 2018 team, that was really good on defense that that's okay to take the the air out of the ball toward the end of the game, especially with a lead, because uh, you know that the the other team is going to be forced to make a play, and they're going to have to do it against a tough defense. Th- this year, for this year's team, obviously a little bit different when uh, the, the offense is better. I, I know what the Ken Palm numbers suggest. You know, the the defense is actually better than the offense in terms of rankings in Ken Palm, uh, but th- this team's strength is on the offensive end, so uh, that that doesn't really work. Uh, necessarily down the stretch when you know you're kind of taking the air out of the ball or you know you got you have four guys standing around the perimeter and then it results in kind of a late jet or or um, as you mentioned maybe maybe it's an early look in the shot clock that's maybe coming from you know 25 feet that's not really the look that you want down the stretch yeah I mean this is really where like like, you know it's no slight necessarily on even like a Canary Richmond who's played reasonably well at point guard here and there or, or Gerard when he plays but I do think that this is where a veteran point guard um, you know, can really kind of slow things down, calm things down, uh, reset everybody. Um, and, and you've seen that in the past um, w- with some of our primary ball handlers. Like Dolajai is a great distributor, but I wouldn't call him our you know primary ball handler, obviously. Um, and, and while he just doesn't have, I think once he's inside the, the arc, I think he has um, a great amount of tools at his disposal to make a play happen either for himself or someone else. Um, I, I think from the outside, he doesn't necessarily have that same uh, skill set, and that's fine. I mean, realistically, he's a big man. He's not supposed to. Uh, but I, I think you, you look at some of these previous teams, whether it's Hughes or Battle uh, or, or various other guys, like Tyler Ennis was a freshman, obviously, but had that sort of calm demeanor. Like not having that 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 veteran or experienced presence of point guard, uh, I, I think does kind of – have does kind of have a, a negative effect in some regards in those late game situations. And I think that that's, that's what we're seeing, you know, most of all, maybe even more than the, the lack of a go-to guy is that lack of a, of, of a game manager late. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. I mean, when you have a Tyus battle or, you know, a guy like that, who you could put the ball in the hands in their hands, late game, you, you feel very comfortable with that. Uh, obviously Dolish is playing center. You, you have your five men out there trying to create a play. Uh, not not always the best in, in late clock scenarios. So James, you know, we got you for a few more minutes here. Um, this North Carolina match is going to be tough. Obviously, we played pretty well against North Carolina last time we faced them um, last March. What do you see happening in this game? Yeah, so so as mentioned, I mean, North Carolina is going to look to push the tempo. I think they're going to try to get down get down the court before Syracuse can set up the two three zone. Uh, also, as mentioned, you know, they're, they're a great rebounding team, lead the ACC. Uh, so Syracuse is really going to have to do a good job on the offensive end. I mean, I, I do expect North Carolina to win this game in, in the rebounding battle. Uh, something to watch there. Syracuse is undefeated when it out-rebounds its opponents. They're 0-2 when they don't. Uh, got out-rebounded against Rutgers, out-rebounded against Pitt, as we know. 
Uh, we'll, we'll see if that's a storyline that continues. Uh, they're, they're really going to have to do their best just to mitigate North Carolina on the glass, especially offensively. Uh, we, we don't know if Barama is going to be able to go. He's, he's practiced. Uh, we've been told that, you know, he's, he's had some soreness in there. Hence, since the reason he hasn't played in the last two games, um, Jim said that he did practice. They don't know how much he's going to be able to contribute against, you know, in this game, if he's going to even go at all. Uh, so that's something to watch. Obviously, Barama City Bay had a really good game against North Carolina when they played in the ACC tournament. Um, that was the first time Syracuse had won against North Carolina since since they joined the ACC. So we'll we'll see what happens. But but ultimately, I think it's going to come down to you know can Syracuse keep North Carolina off the glass just enough? Um, they're probably going to out rebound Syracuse, but they have to do just enough there to to stay in it. And then can the offense really get going to, to get over the hump and, you know, give them some separation in, in a game like that? Or will, will North Carolina step up on the defensive end and, and get it done? Reasonable take. Uh, what would be your final score prediction? I'm going to go with North Carolina in this one, just because I do think they have a bevy of bigs that are going to be a problem. Uh, I think there's a, this scenario where Marek Dolajai or Quincy Garrier get in foul trouble again. Um, and, you know, SU might be a little bit short, shorthanded in this one. Uh, in terms of the the centers, uh, so so I'll go North Carolina. I think they're going to get it done on the glass, and I think the the Syracuse offense is going to struggle just enough to where they can't get over the hump. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty reasonable. Honestly, I, I'm feeling the same way. I think I think UNC is going to win this rebounding battle regardless. Um, I think where SU has a chance is if they can find a way to cut into um, UNC's offensive rebounding ability. Uh, the heels of the top offensive rebounding team in the country. Uh, that's really really tough to compete with. And you know, you mentioned foul trouble. I think if Sidibe's not playing, I don't know how you you outlast the UNC bigs um, w- without more than two bodies to potentially throw in. Uh, I mean, obviously, like Braswell's there. There's other forwards, but realistically, like SU's been pretty hesitant to to use those. The, the rotation's been pretty short um, in, in recent games, and and for various reasons, I I don't see SU winning this game I, unless again somebody just gets hot. Uh, from outside and they turn this into a bit of a uh, bit of a barn burner but because I see this one kind of ending up getting ugly um, getting fought out in the paint a little bit more um, I think you see SU fall maybe by a score like 70 to 66 uh, and and, you know it'll be a tight game but but I I think SU might just run out of gas at the end unfortunately yeah I think that's fair I think it's a three-point spread in this game to be expected uh UNC's the favorite so but but yeah you bring up a good point I mean it's it's two different styles that you know contrasting styles offensively North Carolina's just going to try to get it done in the paint and Syracuse is going to have to do it on the perimeter so if if the shooting is going to struggle for Syracuse in this game I'm going to say they have no shot um but you know if they if they shoot it well they're going to have to shoot it you know just enough to keep them keep them in the game well thanks for that James uh you know, obviously, I don't want to keep you too long, but uh, anything else about about SU hoops that, that you wanted to to share with the, the good people before uh, before saying goodbye on this episode? Uh, we are we are told that, that Merrick Dolajai has has got a replacement on his tooth, and he's not going to be able to eat pizza for a couple more weeks, as Buddy Bayheim said on the ACC Network uh, Monday. Travesty. So, yeah, what what are we going to do? Uh, terrible, terrible. <laughs> But uh, no, no, keep it locked. We'll, we'll have coverage, um, you know, obviously for this game and, and the games coming. So, uh, and I, I'll be back at some home games in a couple of weeks. So, so we'll look for that. But uh, other than that, I uh, appreciate you having me on and always good to talk some hoops.
Well, appreciate it, James. Yeah, honestly, anytime. And, and everybody, like if you don't already follow James, feel free to on Twitter. He's our basketball editor. He has plenty of insights uh, in and around the team all week, not just games. Uh, so definitely worth giving him a follow. It uh, should be a, a fun one uh, late Tuesday night for you East Coasters, hanging out with the wine and cheese crowd, cheese crowd for a little bit of, of ACC basketball. And thanks again to James Zuba for joining us. And now we have uh, another news magician contributor, longtime purveyor of jokes, garbage, comic book references, uniform complaints, sad Steelers fandom, Andy Pregler. How's it going? You, you had to lead off with the uh, with that Steelers comment. I was ready to come in here and start talking some Knicks Nets trash talk and get that in a little bit early, but we can we can start with my pain. Lo- lo- local bandwagon Nets fan, Andy Pregler. <laughs> <laughs> Between Dan uh, and and you kind of talking about the NBA for so long and my friends and starting a new job that has basically made me know the NBA, I've gone all in on the NBA this year. And of course, it's the year that the NBA is probably going to get paused. So this is is why I'm not an NBA fan. (laughs) If if you want to know why the NBA is getting paused this year, it's Andy's fault. Exactly. You can just blame me. <laughs> there were no cases before Andy openly declared in our Slack uh, that, that he was that he was suddenly going to start caring about the Nets. And then within hours, um, it, it seemed games started getting canceled. So uh, Kyrie went mysteriously missing. Like I, it, it all it all just started happening. It's a real delight. Uh, I can't lie. So Andy, we're going to start off with beer um, in, in a weird uh, kind of schedule. Uh, arrangement here we'll do that um, and then we'll talk uniforms and then I already teased it up in the very start of this episode we'll be talking a little bit about WandaVision uh, because of course we had to do that obviously cool Um, so Andy what have you been drinking yeah it's been uh, the holidays are always like a really good time for me to get some get some good beer drinking in with some with some time off and just the ability to do nothing so uh, I was up with my in-laws and they had gotten me a sampling pack from uh, Long Trail Brewing Company so I had their Green Blaze IPA uh, Long Trail Lager both were both were fine samplers nothing nothing too crazy they were really good uh, good drinking beer and in some quantities um, I had some precipice from Three's Brewing, which is a local Brooklyn place. It's a, it was a dark lager. I, I really didn't like it a whole lot, but that's probably because it wasn't, it tasted like it was trying to be a light dark lager. So it just tasted not great. Um, but it's still, it was a nice, uh, nice winter beer. And then, uh, I found some flower power at my local bodega. That's always a, that's always a win and always going to pick up a six pack of that. Um, but last night for the game that we shall not mention, uh, one of my friends got me a growler of uh, other halves, double dry hopped, ain't nothing nice. I really enjoyed that. That was like a great juicy um, IPA like beer that I, I just could have drank three growlers of that if even if the Steelers had won the game. Hey, fair enough. I mean, my, I mean, my team missed the playoffs on the on the last day of the season uh, <laughs> due to due to some chicanery um, from from a Pennsylvania based coach who is no longer employed. Uh, but, <laughs> but in any case, uh, I'll, I'll get to my beers. Uh, it was a little birthday weekend drinking um, on my end. So uh, I had uh, Beachwood 13. It's a, it was a hoppy German Pilsner. It was a really, really good. Um, honestly, tasted like kind of like guava juice almost. It was like that light and enjoyable. Um, also had the Beachwood Blendery. 
We Are Who We Pretend to Be. Uh, it was a lambic from them. Really, really enjoyable. Um, I took a uh, sushi making class uh, virtually over the weekend. So I uh, had to have some Asahi uh, super dry uh, while making that. And uh, also from uh, Celador, um, which I've mentioned all the time uh, from up in LA, um, I had Verboten, their vermouth inspired wild ale. Uh, so all really good stuff. And I was definitely uh, definitely glad to enjoy those. Also had some bourbon. Um, so fun, fun weekend all around. Yeah, I hit the I hit the bourbon pretty hard on New Year's, so I've been I've been taking a I've taken a little bit of break from that uh, lately. But I've got uh, I made a bet with uh, a friend in Syracuse, uh, and he's sending me a bottle of Southern Tears bourbon. It's it's got some kind of flavoring to it. I forget exactly what it is, but I'm really looking forward for that to get down here, and it'll be my first ever bourbon from a brewery. So we'll see how that goes. There's a lot of uh, I mean, there's a lot of breweries getting into the distillery game, mostly because of the uh just market for it and obviously when you have so many yeah you have so many beer and like bourbon drinker overlap and you also have the fact that there's a lot of people leaving beer um and wine but beer too um for spirits so i think you know i think ballast point really kind of paved the way there ballast point like started distilling like years ago um and like they they had some great spirits and they won like some awards and all, all that and i feel like there's been a lot more um, breweries in recent years kind of getting into the distillery game so uh, yeah, a trend it's, to watch yeah and it's definitely just interesting that the timing as well uh, i mean i'm sure that the pandemic uh had it had an impact on that as you're not able to move as much beer uh to your to your local bars as as you were planning on and spirits seem to be something that you can move in a store probably a little bit easier than you can move to a bar oh yeah yeah i, I would definitely agree with that um Andy, we'll get to football in a sec um, and then some Marvel talk, but did want to get into, um, obviously, a passion of yours, of mine, of, of many, uh, script uniforms. Uh, Syracuse has been wearing script uh, seemingly with more frequency this year. Um, they're not losing every game in them either. I think, what, they're 2-1 and one in these games uh, yeah. so far this year. Uh, how do you like the, the, the current version of the script? Do you think there needs to be any improvements? And, and I'm assuming you're on board to just have us adopt that as a full-time uniform set at this point. Yeah, I think the the most interesting thing about the alternate uniforms, and I, I think everybody who listens to this probably read Jim Beheim's, uh autobiography, or biography, I forget if it was auto or, or whatever, uh, ble- the bleeding orange one. And in it, he does mention something about alternate uniforms and about how he just, in general, doesn't like the concept of of changing a uniform every every week and as soon as he loses in an alternate uniform he doesn't wear them which is why we didn't see a whole lot of script prior to this because the record in the script is miserable and and Beheim being a uh, somewhat superstitious head coach means that they don't get worn um but this year they seem to have kind of taken more of an NBA approach of saying like listen people like these jerseys they're not our main jerseys but we're going to wear them to the point that they basically become the main jerseys and i think that that's probably a good thing for Syracuse to do because you and I have talked about this. We're, we're pretty, we're both pretty open about this on Twitter that uh, Syracuse's m- merchandising strategy tends to work really well when they partner with companies like our old friends at home field, but 47 has kind of gotten into this program as well. Nike has started using it more where they're using the retro marks. Like, like there's just a strong affinity to this fan group. And I think part of it is that with the block S Syracuse hasn't really won anything. Syracuse did most of its winning um, that we as a fan base associate winning with, with old and uh, with older, different looking logos. So those logos just sell better. And 
the script is probably the best example of uh, a mark that has kind of transcended winning or losing. It's gotten to the point of it doesn't really matter what happens when teams are wearing them. Everybody likes it. And to me, I understand that there's a reluctance from the athletic department to maybe you know, there was under Doc Gross, there was this whole kind of re-oranging the entire athletic department, putting everything under the block S, making everything more cohesive and more unified. And you don't necessarily want to change that right away. But man, there's just a part of me that goes, the script is so well liked. It's it's literally in the airport when you land in Syracuse. Like there's there's something beyond just basketball team nostalgia that that works with the script so well. And the basketball jerseys obviously look great. The women have found a way to modernize the script. Uh, lacrosse will sometimes do script on the helmets. It, it just looks so much better than standard collegiate block lettering that five other power five schools use. <laughs> Yeah, I think you definitely get to the the heart of the issue there. And the one I was going to bring up was just the the, the set that we incorporated starting um, in the 07 Big East tournament or like right around the Big East tournament. It might have been like a couple weeks before. Um, when it was very late in the, in the 06, 07 season that we started with the 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 set that is still considered the main uh, w- w- was a very standard Nike uh, template. Looked a lot like Michigan State, several others. On the Block S, obviously, is a nondescript logo for the most part that, you know, steals from Michigan State, Stanford, um, NC State. It's 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 just, it it doesn't have character. Um, and that doesn't mean it can't work. Uh, but, but I think the problem for, for a school like Syracuse that doesn't have this, like, longstanding um, success on a national level, like in anything, like even basketball, like, like really lacrosse is the exception uh, on the men's side. But really, like, for basketball, like, yes, we've won a lot, but we haven't won more than one national championship. Like we make the final four, but we still only make it once a decade um, for the most part. Like I, I think that SU just has always had this like kind of weirdness and quirkiness um, about it, especially in men's basketball um, that you can partially attribute to Bayheim and like, you know, bubble, weird bubble lettering, like even like the, the, the weird like S with the basketball um, from the you know national title year. Um, all those like, like growing up and being someone who watched Syracuse cared about Syracuse, uh, to an extent because like they were the biggest team in New York. Um, like I'm obviously a much bigger fan now than I was then. Um, like to me, you knew Syracuse was on because of like some quirky, you know, logo, um, or, or quirkiness on the uniform. Uh, and, and I felt like that was part of, uh, you know, it's kind of calling card. And I think that like the, the Nikeification of the athletic department, um, since like the, probably like right after gross took over did kind of take away some of that character. And it didn't really matter whether you were winning or losing that it still felt like kind of bland and corporatized. And I think now that you're seeing, um, really positive steps toward not doing that anymore, uh, it's definitely, a much better setup for, for the athletic department's brand as a whole. I think, I think it's much better for, for fans. It's much better for, from a nostalgia standpoint, and like, you know, I mean, the athletic department knows this, I'm sure. Like you can charge more for, for, for stuff that, that looks vintage um, and, and people will, will happily pay it. Um, and, and I think that that's the case. They've seen that that's the case already. I know I recently bought um, the old carrier dome logo um, hat, as well as like that old jagged, um, S as well on a hat um, from 47 brands. So they're definitely, um, they're definitely unloading all the old marks um, as much as they can, which is great. 
Yeah, and you're seeing it across. And I think uh, you brought up a great point about the Nikeification. Like Nike went through this phase, and a lot of this is because of your favorite school, Oregon, being the heart of their innovation, where everything was was kind of pushing towards the future. Everything was pushing towards this general, more modern aesthetic that that went beyond pros uh, beyond college sports and kind of was, it was all around you know architecture and design and all these other things that they're pulling design input from but what you then what you see nike do now and i see this at the nfl level even they're really starting to embrace a lot of the heritage and a lot of the retro stuff because there's only so f- much that you can do with modern uh, and a, a very rigid style guide from a school or from a professional football program that allows you to only use these colors and only allows you to use these fonts. You know, everything ends up looking basically the same, and people stop buying stuff because it looks the same every year. Well, it was a push and, in the 90s, too. I mean, the, the, the 90s, like the late 90s and the early 2000s, I mean, you probably remember just as well as I do, every team seemingly rolled out new uniforms, new knew something. They, they messed with the formula to some extent. And I don't think people understood just how much emotion um, fans tie to certain colors, certain logos. Like even if the logo changes a little bit, um, the, the colors in particular are just, I mean, you, you look at like, um, like even like the European soccer clubs, like yet, yes, there are like alternate jerseys, but fans hate them. Like, like straight up, like, like, I know like Chelsea wears like one random, like, highlighter jersey or an all black jersey and like everyone riots because like it's like why are you wearing this and, and it happens across the board and like fans care about like have positive associations with the color with the logo that and, and it's not because ultimately like you are rooting for laundry to some extent and yeah. and, and and i think nike in particular like uh, uh, the other uh you know companies uh, apparel companies I think lost their way too, but I, I think Nike in particular kind of led that charge. And, and I think it's good to see in pro and college ranks, everybody kind of moving back. And you're seeing basically all the logos that were introduced between like 95 and like 2005, like have been wiped off the map and, and replaced by the things that preceded, like immediately preceded them in many cases. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, to bring in a different company, like the, the NHL re- released this retro, reverse retro program where, they took retro marks, retro jerseys, and basically inverted the color. So um, instead of it, if it was a white jersey, then it became a team color jersey now. And the response to, to that program was mostly positive, except for the jerseys that uh, were, were throwing it back to like the late 90s, early 2000s, when everybody hated the way that those jerseys looked. Uh, so it's it, it's been it's been really interesting in the case of Syracuse specifically, because the fans have made it abundantly clear that script jerseys are the way to go. You go on the new Syracuse uh, website, which that's a, a whole other diatribe that we can get into at a later date. Uh, but the, all the, the, the jer- jerseys that are available are retro jerseys. Like there's we're, we're at a point and especially in college sports where you cannot make money at least now off of the current players that are on the court. You, you really are leaning into nostalgia if the team's not winning. And for better or for worse, Syracuse isn't winning, but there's a ton of untapped history and nostalgia that Syracuse athletics is now starting to, to reach into and can really monetize against until hopefully, you know, the winning continues for the modern team. That's fair. Uh, Andy, quick football note here, and then we'll talk Marvel for a little bit. Um, I think that it's either Jawar Jordan or, or Nikeem Johnson. Um, I know Nikeem Johnson in particular headed to uh, Kent State to rejoin uh, Sean Lewis. 
But it's between the two of them, really, that what the biggest uh, impact kind of, you know, transfer out of Syracuse has been um, this offseason. I guess, A, would you agree? And B, like, like, where's the position that you really think SU needs to focus? Um, obviously, you know, they, they already have quarterback covered uh, with Garrett Schrader. But like, where else do they need to focus on the transfer market to really kind of shore up some some concerns here? Yeah, I think uh, Steve and I kind of talked about this yesterday in our Sportscaster uh, live stream. And uh, I mean, aside from Lustig, who leaving is probably a, a pretty big hole just because of the role of the associate head coach that 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 plays into a football program in general, more so than the special teams coach on the field. I would I, I would have said Jordan off the top. Um, but then Steve Steve brought up something. And I want to give him credit for this idea. And he was saying that Jordan was kind of slotted to get his snaps one way or the other. If it wasn't at running back, if it wasn't spelling Tucker, who did get hurt this year, he hasn't played a full season. So you could probably safely bet that there would be some opportunities for him to be the, the running back one. Um, if he wasn't in this weird H back role, um, the fact that Jordan left the program makes me think and made Steve think that there might be this move of that Taj Harris might finally move into some kind of slot role and might move into a more creative role rather than just run fast down the sideline. And if that is the case, I'm not really worried about either receiver leaving. Losing Nikeem does hurt it a little bit more because if you move Taj inside, you, you need somebody on the outside who can reliably uh, go up and win a vertical battle. And we saw a little bit of that from Queeley, uh, definitely towards the back half of the season, but he was given a lot of opportunities early in the season and, and never was able to really establish himself as that guy. And that's why you saw Taj stay outside. Um, but if if that's the case, if we're going to move Taj inside, then I'm definitely I'm not loving the loss of Nikeem just because he could at least beat people with his speed. Um, but I still think that until we know exactly what's going on with McKinley Williams, my leaning is that he's going to leave. Um, that defensive tackle position is just looking real, real weird because you might have the two returning defensive ends. Um, but if you don't have somebody in the middle of that three, three, five, you're not going to get any kind of pass rush and you're going to negate a lot of the positives that come from the scheme um, and the confusion that it creates pre-snap for the quarterback. Yeah, I think all that's reasonable. And, and for me, like while I am concerned about uh, outside receiver, because like you said, I do think Harris moves inside where he's excelled. Uh, that means that you're relying on Quilly, maybe Hendricks, uh, you know, uh, Javante Williams, uh, that there's, but like, these are all largely like wheel is the most proven. He's still not that proven um, as an outside receiver. So realistically you do need some sort of big target um, outside, you know, just to, to slot in there. Um, for me, I think um, I'd really like to see uh, another offensive tackle um, added. I, I think that, you know, having Chris Bleich coming in at guard is great uh, as one transfer from Florida, but now we need somebody else uh, to plug in and that's not to completely, you know, hate on the current tackles it's just to say that like last year's group never really came together and, and doesn't mean they can't this off season, but I'm not holding my breath. So I, I just think it's imperative for SU uh, to be able to put somebody else in there because Tucker is such a good back and was such a good back, even with a terrible uh, line in front of him. I, I'd love to see him, you know, w- w- with a great offensive line, uh, you know, leading that push and making him not have to do as much um, powering through and more just using his kind of breakaway speed that he's able to to utilize. 
Yeah, and I think that that's uh, something that could be a real game breaker for this offense is that if you're not going to have an Eric Dungy at quarterback who can just make a play, a positive play, no matter what happens, the ability to have an even average offensive line so that the running game becomes that much more uh, of a focus on the defense it'll open up the passing game for these unproven wide receivers. Like this, this whole, this whole offense is now firmly on the running game to kind of keep the engine moving. And I think that's the way Dino would like the offense to be in a, in a traditional sense. Yes. The quarterback needs to be accurate. Yes. The quarterback's a big piece of it, but ideally he wants to have an offense where if you're going to clear out the box and you're going to be selling out on the pass, he'll just run the ball up the middle for five to seven yards. And Tucker's that back who can just put his head down, pick a gap and do it the problem is that there just needs to be a little bit of daylight there and he was able to do well with no daylight um and and yeah it getting shoring up the offensive line just because steve talks about it all the time if these guys do not gel as a unit there's not a whole lot you can do you can't just plug and play each week and expect everything to like magically fix itself i completely agree i i I think that you know for me it's one add on the interior defense, one area um, at tackle, hopefully um, on offense, one wide receiver and one corner. And that probably fills out your roster. And I think that gets as you, if not to the max, um, to like one short of uh, the max amount of roster spots. So I, I'm hopeful that we can address most of those, but there's a real chance we don't. And and if not, I think that you, you, you have to see some Juco. I mean, I don't want to doubt the staff, the offseason is just getting started, but there's there's a lot more there's a lot more additions on other programs um, so far than you're seeing for SU, and 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 it's not to say that SU can't. Um, I know there's a potential target coming in North Carolina, Patrice Renee, uh, a name that people probably um, know, you know, from his, his brother. But I, I I think that realistically, like we need to start moving. Like Schrader was a great ad, okay, but like what next? So there's a lot of programs who need who have fewer pressing needs than we do to like field a competent team that that had been able to add. And I mean, even like, you know, Kent state, like Sean Lewis has done a great job adding guys this off season already. Um, and a lot of SU guys in particular, but I, I, I do think that, that, that SU has like a real need here to, to bring in at least like two more. Um, and then if the rest are JUCOs um, or we end up getting in with, um, you know, some, some better like high school recruits, fine. But I think, we do need some immediate help. And I think for, for Baber's, you know, long-term abilities at SU, I think he knows he needs the immediate help. Yeah. There's, you can't rely on players that were not ready for this season to step up and be ready for next year. When you're not sure what kind of off season you're looking at. Like we, we don't know what now until fall ball looks like in terms of what they're able to do, how effective they're able to practice, how often they're able to get together. Like it's, it's better off, not just for the short term, but for the long term development of a lot of the guys further down the depth chart to just get some people in who are been through, been through the ringer, been through multiple off seasons and are at a point where physically they're ready to go and they can spend the off season just learning the playbook and know how to take care of themselves a lot more than, you know, a second year, a guy who's got to campus in the middle of this pandemic and has never had a true off season. Agreed. Agreed. Um, all right, Andy, we got a few more minutes here. So <laughs> WandaVision starts on Friday. We're getting two episodes to start. Episodes seem like they're going to be running in the 30 to 40 minute range. 
per episode, which is good, I think, for people that um, live with someone who might not be as big of a fan of them, but will sit through it. Um, the shorter, the better on these episodes. Uh, but there's been a lot of speculation about what's going to happen. I guess I'll, I, I will go to you first. What do you think is going to be the general concept here? And what are we going to see in the first couple episodes? Yeah, so I, I will add this disclaimer. Um, at my previous employer at, at Tops, I was working directly with Marvel, and I did get to see WandaVision content before any of the trailers dropped and everything, but they were pretty explicit that they they weren't going to tell anybody what was going on in the show. Um, so the implications seem to be that right off the bat, things are going to get weird, things are going to be different, and all we really know is that the key players are going to be um, Wanda uh, Wanda Maximoff, played by Lizzie Olsen, uh, Paul Bettany's Vision, uh, Monica Rambeau is going to be the new character introduced, who's going to be kind of the figurehead of S.W.O.R.D. She's going to be uh, a really integral player and part of the new roster that they build out. And then Catherine Hahn's character uh, is going to be really crucial and i firmly believe that she's playing some version of agatha harkins who in the comic books is basically a mentor teacher to the scarlet witch and helps her awaken her natural magic like uh, in the comics uh scarlet witch is a mutant who has the ability to kind of manipulate energy and such and then she learns from agatha harkins how to tap into magic and there that makes her even more powerful and i'm i I'm thinking that as Kevin Feige is wont to do, he's going to take a, a comic book story format in the, in this case, Tom King's vision of really kind of dystopian, creepy suburban tropes, but he's going to use the general over story of, of Scarlet, Witch kind of becoming more magic based rather than this, this person who has these abilities because of, and in the movie's case, I believe it's technically the Tesseract that gave her her powers or is it the mind stone? I, I, I keep forgetting with her, with her, it was the reality stone. I believe. Yeah. I think it was the reality stone. What color was the reality stone? Red. Yeah. Red is the, red is the ether, the, the Thor two thing. Yeah. Was so, sure. yeah. So I'm pretty sure the reality stone. Yeah. We're gonna. Oh, no, no. She, gets her, she gets her powers from Loki's scepter because Hydra basically off camera manipulates Loki's scepter between um, Avengers one and age of Ultron. And they don't really explain why the mind stone makes somebody fast and makes somebody uh, have weird magic powers. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, so seeing, yeah. So the reality stone is the one. It seems like the reality stone I mean, I know, like, in the comics, the reality stone, like, is part of uh, Wanda's story. And I think it is here, too, to some extent. But we haven't, like, explored really how legit that is. And and I think I think it's a good idea from a... I think it's a good idea from a story standpoint to move them sort of past, uh, you know, the Infinity Saga to some extent to lean into the magic portion of, of who she is and what she does. Um, and, and, you know, teaming her maybe even against strange um, you know, in, in the coming Dr. Strange movie is good and, and they'll lean further into that. But I, I think in general, like this does, this will do a much better job of defining who she is going forward. I, I know you and I have talked about it in our, uh, our Marvel Slack room um, on the noon Slack. Um, and part of that is that I think she does become a villain um, or a little bit of an antihero as she is in the comics eventually. 
um, what, what I'm interested to see here um, in, in these early episodes is like, how weird does it get early? Um, or, or do they kind of straight play it uh, for the first couple episodes as a sitcom and then start kind of breaking down the foundations of what it looks like? It, it does seem like we build towards something that looks more like a typical Marvel movie by the end. Uh, you can see some of those trailer shots that show a more modern uh, Wanda Maximoff uh, seemingly like, you know, suiting up or, or getting ready for battle, so to speak. Uh, so, so I do think we end up seeing something that looks more like a, uh, a modern Avengers type movie eventually. Um, but it's probably those last few episodes. I, I think, you know, on the Agatha point, what, what I kind of keep going back and forth about is whether or not, whether she's acting alone. Um, and if she is not, if, I guess, A, if Mephisto, uh, for those not f- familiar, um, the, uh, the devil in, uh, in, in Marvel Comics, if he is behind it, and if he is, if, if that's something that they play with um, at all, you know, given maybe some of the hesitations in other countries um, of depictions of the devil, afterlife, things like that. Um, I, I think that ultimately they do, um, because Mephisto is a very big character, especially I feel like in recent Marvel uh, comics, he's played an increasing role. Uh, but I, I, I'm curious to see if they they go all the way through that in this show, or if they just end it as like Agatha was, and maybe they hint at that there was some that there was somebody else pulling the strings there. Yeah, my my theory, my overarching theory, just based off of the trailer shots and based off of kind of the way that Marvel has traditionally um, built these these larger. Because I I want to one of the things that I thought was really interesting was the insistence from Feige in multiple interviews where he said that these are basically the same, they're, they're using the same mechanisms. They're using the same uh, vision and mindset of making movies, of making these TV shows. The TV shows are just going to be, you know, two to three times as long as a movie would be. So and what Marvel and what Feige likes to do is kind of take these comic book stories that have stood the test of time because the general themes are are pretty universal, but but change them in a more um, relatable and less continuity heavy way. And one of the things that I think is is really interesting, they keep showing in the trailer shots of Wanda, you know, uh, being blinded by this yellow light. And and my theory is that in the comic books, a big, big part of the Infinity Gems that gets explored in the post um, Thanos snap Starlin comic back in the 90s was that the reality gem had this pocket dimension inside of it. And this and this pocket dimension is, is becomes a big place for Adam Warlock to become a character. It ends up becoming a later mechanism for Gamora. Uh, and it, and even now, I think Hank Pym Ultron is, is like the ruler of this pocket dimension and Drax is, plays a role in it. So there's all these characters that you know of have had this very long comic book history with this dimension that we've not really touched upon in any of the Infinity Stones. And I wonder if moving forward or in this particular story, we're going to move forward and realize that like this this thing that they're trapped in, because that seems to be pretty apparent that sword is trying to get Wanda out of something and whatever this thing is that they're trapped in, isn't necessarily supernatural per se. It's, it's just this power that we don't understand. And maybe then it's Wanda's magic powers, which we've shown can, you know, mess with these, with these galactic forces, if that's what it needs to take. So she needs to basically awaken the side of her in order to free herself and everybody else who's trapped in it. Um, That's like, that's that's my hypothesis but 
that also doesn't do anything with that. I, I you know I have no inklings over like whether it's Mephisto, whether this is going to be the first, like the opening move of a much larger story that seems to very easily tie into Doctor Strange 2 and Spider-Man 3, because it definitely seems like this is not necessarily a standalone series. This is going to have this is basically the opening act for what's going to be a very long Marvel uh, multiverse saga. Yeah, I agree. I think I think what this does, like I, I think that the the moorings of reality had already been kind of altered by the like multiple snaps and everything else. Um, and, and I think that this is like kind of where everything completely breaks. Uh, and and I, I do think that, you know, between this and that's where like Black Widow's timing is going to be weird. Yeah, um, we don't have to talk about that now, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think between, between this, uh, between Spider-Man and, and, and Doctor Strange, I think you see like, hey, I think you see the pieces continue to fall. Like pieces start falling apart here. You see the wider effects of those pieces falling apart in Strange. And I think that maybe Spider-Man. Hopefully not too much because I do think that Spider-Man deserves his own like kind of showcase and he's really yet like he got it in the last movie, but I do think he deserves like a way to close out that three movie arc. I do think instead you end up with something that puts his life back together, but more than that puts reality back together with Strange's help. I do think, and I was just thinking through this, like as we speak, that this absolutely is going to mean that we're getting a one more day um adaptation yeah. like, there, like there's not a chance in hell it doesn't happen i think people are gonna riot <laughs> i mean the problem the problem again this is I, this is where i think uh we've kind of talked about this a little bit in the slack channel um but this is where things are going to get kind of dicey for marvel is because you've kind you've not necessarily used up all of the good comic book stories but the comic book stories that you haven't touched yet if you're kevin feige are a lot of these more modern stories that are either one bogged down by needing to know years of character backstory in order to kind of really fully understand them and appreciate them. If you're going to do a one-to-one adaptation or in the case of one more day, they're really well known because every they're either loved or they're hated and there's no in between. And the minute that you make a comic book movie about a hated comic book story, you might actually start to see box office impact. Yeah. I think that's very reasonable. I think it's maybe something we talk about. Maybe we end up doing a slacking off next week. Um, unless there's like time for a podcast or something but uh, well i was just gonna say like one of the other things that i think is interesting and like uh for for the people who are not marvel fans listening to this i think we're talking about a ridiculously crazy weird show that was not supposed to be the entry point to marvel disney plus it was supposed to be falcon and winter soldier which is this very looks like a very grounded you know jason Bourne type story and now that's coming later and again the the whole point of these shows is that marvel is the biggest money maker at the box office that disney has and disney is trying to get those dollars onto the disney plus platform something that you've written uh, like so much about <laughs> and i'm just curious like to what does this show need to do in order to be a success from the business side of the disney plus equation yeah i mean i think realistically they're never going to share numbers because no streaming service does but i i I am curious to see, and we talked about this, like what, like what's too much from a continuity and time investment standpoint, and and this is a weird show to test that theory with to start. Never mind, like some of the other shows coming down uh, the pipe, but I I think that people are starved enough for Marvel content. And I think people that are even mildly interested uh, will watch because there's just not a whole lot going on at the moment. I mean, the they're the fact that everyone's going to be trapped at home for the rest of the show, like the boys saw a ton of success coming out at the beginning of the pandemic. And I, I think 
Marvel is is hoping to have basically double the success because they think that they've got you know double the double the base that an indie show on Amazon has. Fair. <laughs> All right, uh, I think we'll close it out there. Andy, thank you very much for uh, for joining. Like I said, I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll, we'll have some sort of uh, Wandavision like postmortem um, publicly, even if it's just on Twitter. But uh, we'll we'll definitely figure it out. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited for it, and it will give me something to watch when Syracuse basketball inevitably disappoints me. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, that was Andy. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Megaphone, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, and go orange. Go orange.